Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Stephanie Everett, and this is episode 272 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're sharing a throwback episode with Greg Crabtree about four keys to a profitable law firm. Today's podcast is brought to you by First Place Legal, Back Office Betty's, Text Expander, and LawPay. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. Stephanie, why are we replaying an episode with Greg Crabtree? It's important right now <laughs> to get your finances ready. Yes. You know, it's interesting. We, we put out these podcasts where we um, we talk to experts, and sometimes these are people who we end up working with. And um, we're, we're not working with Greg Crabtree, although we've had him in for a workshop in lab, but we are following the Simple Numbers system fairly closely ourselves. So it's something that we really think is worth lawyers paying attention to, I guess is the conclusion to take from that. Yeah, I mean, I've been on a ton of coaching calls this week and last, and if you're not thinking about your cash flow and managing your finances right now, you should be. Cash flow management is a huge thing right now. Yeah, and and by the way, some law firms are just busting at the seams right now. They're busier than they ever could be, and that's awesome. Some are seeing a slowdown because courts are closed and they're just not able to do as much work right now. And obviously their phone maybe isn't calling and, and I'm telling them, I don't think that's going to last, right? Like we're going to see a shift. So some people are managing a little bit of a cash flow crisis right now during the shutdown. I think some lawyers might see a little bit of cash flow problems 30, 60, 90 days from now. Like if they're really busy right now, helping small businesses navigate this tough time, but then they could see their work shift. So it's just something everyone needs to be aware of. I mean, the reality is like the economy is changing underneath us right now. And it's it's kind of hard to know what comes out the other side and what that means for small firm lawyers. Everything is being reshaped right now around uh, ordering groceries and food and booze and whatever else you need to, to get by and um, all of the other things where everyone's homeschooling. And so... As with all shifts, some businesses are prospering and some are suffering. And when we come out the other side of this, some of the ones who were prospering are going to be in a much stronger position to take over um, a larger portion of how how we go about our day-to-day lives and the role they play in it. And I have no idea what all the knock-on effects are, but yeah, it's it's a thing. And so managing your cash flow, getting your cashes in a good position so that when you come out the other side you'll have options. I I feel like that's the takeaway here is like trying to put yourself in a position where you have options, whatever it looks like on the other side. My takeaway would be something we talked a lot about in the book and, and all the things we do, which is be intentional, right? Like you can't just like ride this wave and not be thoughtful. You need to be actively managing your business, actively managing your strategy. Like now's not the time to put your head in the sand, but get involved and start thinking about things. Well, and the, there's the obvious piece too, which is, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of the discussion is around like, how do I survive this period? But there is actually another aspect to that, which is what if you get sick, how will you get through this too? 
um, a few weeks ago, you know, we were joking about Anvil Day and running a rehearsal of what if an anvil dropped on you in your your office. You know, we just kind of had an anvil drop on the world. And um, so that is all of a sudden a really real thing where making sure that you have a plan for what happens if disaster hits you or someone who is a key person in your firm um, or one of your most important clients, whatever, um, seems like a really valuable thing to be thinking about right now, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll confess um, (laughs) that I got struck with this thing, right? Like, um, I'm on day nine. I'm okay. I luckily there's lots of variations in how sick people get when they get it. And I had a mild to moderate case. I don't even know how you'd classify me in the spectrum. Fingers crossed so far, it stays a mild to moderate case. (laughs) Right. Don't make me laugh. I start coughing. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a little scary, right? When you realize when it kind of super scary. Yeah. Came on our business. I don't think suffered like we were pretty ready to go and everybody and you jumped in and did some things for me. That was awesome. And everybody kind of jumped into place and knew what to do. And, um, and so that was awesome. But, but it really, it also made us rethink too, like, okay, we've already had, we're a small team. We've already had one team member go down with this thing. It's possible others will still be infected, right? Like it's, it's not over. I mean, it's a good chance. Like it's only a few of us, but somebody else is getting sick. That's just going to happen. Yeah. And I took all the precautions. I haven't, I mean, it's really crazy to me how I even got this thing because I feel like I've been right. so super careful. You the house. Yeah. I'm like, I'm a rule follower, people. I'm not one of those people that was out there <laughs> ignoring the things. Like, I was sheltered in place way before they told us to be. But who knows? Like, it's just that our world is connected. But all that's to say, so one, yeah, be intentional right now with your business. Make sure you have a plan for yourself. If you have a key team member, if anybody in your firm does get sick, you should know how to handle that. Think about your finances. Greg's advice today is is great. We actually are doing a webinar that you can um, jump on with us on April 23rd on getting your finances recession ready, because I think you need to just be thinking about things you can do now to be intentional. That's next. <laughs> yeah. And just be ready like for whatever comes. By the way, the good news is all the advice we talk about to get your firm recession ready is just good business advice. So even if I'm mm. wrong and we're not headed into a recession, you know, you're still going to be okay following this advice. I mean, I, I don't have my economic prediction hat on, but I'm, I'm hopeful as a person. I just, I don't want it to be bad, but it looks really bad right now, right? I mean, that that is the in the, the nature of a lot of the advice that we've been giving over the years. Like, go paperless because it will make your firm better. And if disaster hits, you won't lose everything. Um, you know, be able to be remote because it will make your firm better. It'll give you more options for skilled people to hire and... If disaster hits, you'll be ready to deal with it. You know, it's like a lot of the things that are best practices, if you take the time to do them, will also make your firm more resilient, which seems like a good idea right now. Yeah. If not always. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, keep listening. Keep coming to the website. We've, we're continuing to just give you as many resources as we can to help you mm-hmm. navigate this very uncertain time. And if you just need to connect with one of us. And I had several labsters get on with me this week because they're like, I just need to see another face and I just need it to be around people. And that's cool too. That's cool too. So we'll have this conversation with Greg Crabtree about getting your finances in order, not specifically with relation to the current recession and state of the world, um, but very, very relevant. But first we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Jay Rathman from First Place Legal. And then we'll dive into that conversation with Greg. 
Hi, my name is Jay Rathman, and I am with an agency called First Place Legal, and our sole focus is helping law firms, both large and small, but predominantly smaller firms, build and, and rank their websites uh, with a lot of authority on Google, so that when someone is searching for, you know, divorce lawyer near me, or, you know, auto accident attorney, or, you know, whatever keywords they're searching, our goal is to, to rank your site in a position where they will click on it and generate a new case lead for you. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jay. Well, thank you, sir. You and I are both recording from home isolation uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, so if you hear my uh, my supervisor <laughs> bark a little bit, you know, we'll have to be okay with that. Exactly. Uh, I'm watching my cat climb up the screen door uh, at the moment as well. Nice. Um, so a lot of lawyers are worried right now and, um, and maybe have put their practices on pause. A lot of lawyers aren't, but a lot of lawyers are. And uh, I'm wondering what your advice is to those lawyers who are finding themselves with more time and wondering what to be doing with it. How can they put themselves in a good position um, either now or for when kind of the world comes back to life? Yeah, so that's a great question. And a lot of people uh, have different thoughts about that. But my, my thought is pretty clear. Well, a lot of lawyers are kind of putting their practice on hold, you know, uh, oh, shucks, what am I going to do? How long is this going to last? I think the smartest and most aggressive lawyers are using this as an opportunity to spruce up their websites, make sure their content's right, make sure that they're doing everything that they can uh, to be able to rank really well when we come out of this on the other side, I think that's a big opportunity because the woe is me attorneys just really aren't doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. They're more concerned about how to survive. And that's important. But if you have a, a business that, you know, can survive this over a couple of months, right now there's such a unique opportunity to be able to build your rankings and authority in Google for the type of law that you practice. And I, I actually wrote a book on this, and, and you'll make mention of it towards the end, where they can get a free copy of it. And if you go through the things in that book, if you want to do them yourself, it will absolutely help you rank your website with, with more authority on Google. Uh, or, of course, you can hire an agency like ours, or there's there's lots of other agencies. You know, I think there's a few others mm -hmm. that focus on, you know, specifically working with attorneys, which I think is important. If you're going to work with us or somebody else, make sure that they only focus on lawyers because it's the most competitive category on the internet. Mm -hmm. And if you really don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. I like that you mentioned, you know, we talk a lot about being future oriented on this podcast and lawyerist and um, right now you need to be future oriented, but only a few months into the future. <laughs> you yeah. just not need to be totally bogged down in the present because there will be life after this. And you mentioned to me that SEO doesn't sleep and neither do legal needs. That's correct. People need legal help. And, yep. and if the U.S. follows China's example... Um, there's going to be a lot of divorces. Yes, <laughs> I was him. talking to one of my divorce clients today. I was going to say on the other side of this, if you're a divorce lawyer, it's time to cash in. If you're not a divorce lawyer, maybe you need to switch your focus of your practice for a year. Well, and if you're if you're not a divorce lawyer, um, you know, try estate planning because uh, a few yep. months after all the divorces go through, all the babies will be born from everybody who didn't get divorced. So that is very true. <laughs> <laughs> Nine months from now, they're going to be the the coroniums, right? Yeah, exactly. On Facebook, so yeah, no, I agree. But there are absolutely opportunities that that you can execute right now it's little things about how you're you're making sure that you know all of your on-page attributes for your website and and all of its pages are correct making sure that you know you don't have any bad links make sure your url structures are right you know good opportunity to write some really good content right now reading and writing is something you can do right now really effectively yeah, yeah. absolutely 
and and within the next you know if you do this stuff in the month of april by the month of june you should expect to uh to make some jumps in google yeah. uh, which will help your practice tremendously i also really like your advice to spend a little bit of time learning right now uh, i think yep. it's something uh, lots of lawyers talk about seo a few lawyers know a couple things about seo that they heard secondhand yep. um, now is a great time to actually sit down and learn. Totally agree. So if you want to do that, uh, Jay's book is a great place to start. You can find it at firstplacelegal.com and click on book offer. Jay's offering the book for free, um, or if you want a paper copy, you can buy it for 15 bucks on Amazon. No, no, no. I'm actually going to send the hard copy. Oh, fantastic. Free. Wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll take care of the shipping and everything. I'm not going to charge you four bucks or whatever it costs me to ship it. I'll just send it to you. That's an amazing offer. Um, and he's also offering to do a free site audit. So if you're wondering how does this all apply to my website, when you contact Jay through that link at firstplacelegal.com and then click on book offer, um, you can inquire about the free site audit as well. So you can learn kind of where you're starting from. So yep, absolutely. Jay, thanks so much for those offers. And thanks so much for being on the podcast and uh, stay healthy. You as well. Thank you. I'm Greg Crabtree, CEO of Crabtree Owen Berger. We're a CPA firm that focuses primarily on helping entrepreneurs run a profitable business to build wealth and uh, build it both in terms of value and profit creation so that they can uh, make an impact on society and for the people that they serve. Hi, Greg. Thanks for being with us today. And so you wrote the book, Straight Numbers, Simple Talk, Big Profits, Four Keys to Unlock Your Business Potential, which it's worth mentioning if you're listening to this podcast in the month or the week in which it goes live, this is our book club pick for the Lawyerist Insider Facebook group. So, and Greg, I think you're going to join us for a workshop as well. Yes. Yeah. So looking forward to it. Appreciate you having me. So reading your book, um, I have the impression that you are the rare CPA who can look beyond, you know, the tax burden. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of one of those things that it took me a while to kind of get my head formulated around it. I, I was fortunate enough to join a group called the Entrepreneurs Organization. Right. And, and it's a, a place with entrepreneurs kind of hang out and forum. There's various groups that do that. But the nice thing was, is I had in my monthly forum meeting, uh, I had nine other people that by forum rule I couldn't do business with. Mm. And they were the perfect profile of who I wanted to do business with. And, hmm. and so it was really kind of one of those things where I got to apply a principle that I now tell in my talks when I do them. I said, you know, you know, running a successful business takes three things. I need to figure out what the market needs. I need to find a way to do it profitably. And then I need to tell everybody about it. Mm -hmm. And, and that kernel of thought started with that forum because I got a chance to truly figure out what the market needed rather than trying to sell it what I was doing. Uh, and what's your perception of what the market needed? Well, it was really fascinating. They told me three things. Uh, the first thing they told me was, hey, we don't like the April 15th surprise. Right. Uh, and I said, <laughs> you know, I said, hey, oh, by the way, accountants don't like that either. But there's a I do have a process that I know how to fix that. So I can appreciate that. So I said, what else? And he says, well, we don't like being billed by the hour because mm. it's a barrier. You feel a hesitancy to call and ask for, uh, you know, get a question answered. And I said, interestingly enough, I don't like billing by the hour or being billed by the hour myself. And, and really, uh, you know, in terms of your audience being attorneys, I will, I will hypothesize this. I have learned the fact that from an hourly billing methodology, there's only two 
economic outcomes. I either charged for my ignorance or I gave away my expertise. <laughs> that, that's, I like that. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And so now the challenge is, is I got to have a technique that mm-hmm. allows me to bill on a fixed price basis. And so what it forces you to do is to productize your service and you start creating components of your service. And then as we say it now, our, our simple numbers is really a platform. Mm-hmm. So simple numbers is our platform of how we run everything. And once you're on that platform, we can solve a, a whole different host of problems and challenges that our clients face. But if you don't want to be on that platform, I'm just giving you random guidance in terms of you know, anecdotal evidence that may not be authoritative. Well, and the platform is, I think the big picture is kind of like, let's change the lens mm-hmm. from thinking about your your business solely in terms of the end of the year tax burden yeah. and and change that to like, to work backwards from profits. Like th- that that is the core reason for your business to exist. So let's use that to do our math. Absolutely. And, and really... You know, uh, it, it, it establishes this framework of various plays that you're going to run. So I'll, I'll touch on those in a moment. But at the end of the day, you know, I said, okay, well, I understand that. It says, what else? And it says, and this was, this was the damning indictment of a profession. And I said, oh, by the way, you see hundreds of businesses' most intimate details, more so than any person, bankers, attorneys, whatever, mm-hmm. as an accountant. I see more true raw data than anybody as a, as a provider. And since you've got to have some idea what works and what doesn't. And that was the illuminating moment that I realized that here we're thinking we're doing tax returns and payroll taxes and bookkeeping and financial statements and whatever else. And I have data going in front of my face that the Federal Reserve economists would kill for. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> because in today's economy, I, I and, and I don't know this authoritative number, but I, I think I, I the last number I heard that you know seventy percent of GDP in the U.S. is comes from privately held businesses. Right. And guess what? The federal and I've talked to Federal Reserve economists before uh, in in my travels, and they have no insight to our data. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are taking statistical models and applying what they think the economy's doing, and and really they largely rely on public company data and then make extrapolations into the private sector, which they're totally blind to. Mm-hmm. Whereas I sit here every day, every day myself and my consultants, you know, we talk to clients all over the U.S., Canada, we got some international clients as well, but. You know, really, we've started modeling that data. And so I've done multiple modeling projects over the years of where I'll take a group of client data and study it. And that was that critical piece, because once I was motivated to do that first study, that led to the first book. And there's mm-hmm. critical elements of things we learn by studying the data. And I was studying it because nobody was paying me to do it. I was studying out of pure interest <laughs> of what is truth. Which is the best reason to look for things, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm trying to find what what is financial truth in this mm-hmm process. And, uh, and I think we've, you know, and we've continued to even, I mean, I, I'm reticent to, to, to say that I've not written Simple Numbers 2.0. I'm in the process of doing it, but mm-hmm. I think it'll be groundbreaking from what we've learned since the original book oh, cool. uh, that uh, you know, I'll tease everybody with that coming out. As but it'll as be can, a while. There's no reason not to buy the current book. There's not. not a, yeah. Because <laughs> that, that, well, there's things that's the core. I mean, the, the current book, 
the original book is the core of the philosophy of you know right. the, the foundational elements of how you run a run a business profitably. But well, maybe we can start by previewing those. Like you, you talk about the four keys, and so right. in yeah. in brief, what are those four keys? Well, the first thing is is you've got to remove distortion. So I said I, we are purveyors of financial truth. I'm willing to break any rule of general accepted accounting principles to actually create financial truth. And and this came from not from studying academic accounting. It came from studying entrepreneurs and figuring out, getting inside their head, which can be a dark place, but you know, you get inside their head and you go, hey, what are you looking at to run this successful business? Because I wasn't helping them run a successful business. They already had one. But in my curiosity, I started really focusing on these guys that were really good. And they, they're in the traditional sense, their data was horrible. Mm-hmm. And so I kept looking at it, and there, there really were these elements of, of truth that they looked at. And, you know, really it was built around things of, of they understood cash flow. They understood what they were going to intentionally use profitability for. They understood, you know, capital improvements, but not in a technical way that an accountant would appreciate. Hmm. You know, but they, they just knew how to make it work. And so I kept studying that. I said, okay, let me see if I can create a framework of understanding. But the first thing was, though, is also had to look at there's also motivations by an entrepreneur to distort the truth based on their emotions. <laughs> uh, and, and so, and, and there's tax motivations that cause some of this distortion. And, and so when I did my first data aggregation project for the book, I realized that I had to come up with a way to aggregate data to study it, even though I was using a bunch of different businesses from different industries. And then as I kept solving each problem, those really kind of became the foundation of our simple numbers approach to to business. And it started with, first and foremost, we had to normalize owner compensation Mm -hmm. because... I mean, the owner compensation is the biggest distorted factor of a privately held business that's under $10 And what you mean dollars. by that is many, many owners are not paying themselves a salary yeah. that is a reasonable salary for the actual position they have. Yeah, and, and the way you say that is you get paid a salary for what you do, you get a return on what you own. Don't confuse the two. Right. Because I can own a business and not do the work. I can do the work and not own it. And and so those are two totally dis- disconnected activities that if you don't isolate them in their pureness of, of responsibility, you actually start mixing stuff together and you don't really know you know, how, how is it that, that I'm not being successful here? So I want to talk more about that, but before we get to it, I want to make sure we get out the, the four keys. And so once we, once we fix that piece, there's only one other primary distorted factor would be uh, owner-occupied real estate. So if you own the building that you're mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. your business out of and you're not charging yourself a fair market rent, you could either be high or low. Neither one of them is good. And there's really not a good motivation to do it other than, you know, people just like to make themselves feel better about it you know so so really the idea is hey just charge the right number because if you ever stop renting from yourself the building needs to have a rent that's market that it can stand on its own and the build your business might need to move elsewhere you know in that process right so we can evaluate the business on its own standards at that point so first key is making sure that your expenses looks right right exactly The second element is you must establish a target of profitability. 
that you must have an expectation. Now, this is where I, I will give you a preview of the material to come because this is not in the original book. Mm. In the original book, I gave a hypothesis, you know, and this was just from observation that 10% was break even and profitability, 15% was a great business. Anything above 15%, take it while you can get it or the market will compete you back you know, mm-hmm. to that point eventually. And that actually works primarily for most service-based businesses. And you know, I'd say 70% of the businesses are easily still going to fall in that number. I just now know why I set that number. I set it originally, like I said, just from pure observation. Because if you get down to 5% profitability in those types of businesses, the problem is if you have any debt, all of your cash flow is being sucked up by the debt service. And so actually you can have 5% profit and still be negative on a cash flow basis. So 5% is effectively break-even. Yeah. Or, yeah. or and, worse. Yeah. Right, or worse, yeah, and, and depending on how, how the debt load is. So I always, you know, 10% was kind of a good target to set, hey, I feel pretty good that most of us don't have so much debt service that at 10% profitability, we're going to be okay to, you know, to meet debt coverage ratios from the bank mm-hmm. and those kind of things. And what we can, shoot, we can build cash and then try to decide what to do with it. And, and, and as we say, you know, the reason why you have to set a target is a man who aims at nothing hits it with amazing accuracy. You know, right. So so you must establish an expectation. Now here's the here's what we've learned since. Actually, you set your target based on what we now call return on invested capital. So what is universal to all businesses is a viable business model for a long to, to, to cover on today's podcast. But the idea is once I establish my capital invested that I need to have to cover how much buffer cash do I need to have, how much trade capital do I need to have for cover receivables, inventory, you know, most of your audience, obviously they're going to have receivables, but also do I get vendor support? And, and in, in mm-hmm. your industry's case, you don't get it. So you have, you're mainly carrying receivables and work in progress. Is the thing you got to fund. You have a little bit of an equipment, which we call infrastructure capital. You sum all that up and say, if I'm going to run a million dollar practice, how much do I need? How much invested capital will I need to have? And it's probably about a hundred to hundred fifty thousand, probably uh, at, at minimum, maybe two hundred thousand. And when you when you say that, do you mean money in the bank, or what do you mean by invested capital? Invested capital is the sum of all assets minus the sum of all liabilities, and so. Cash plus the things I bought and own in the business minus do I get any support from vendors, which probably in your business you don't. I see. Okay. And and it doesn't count debt on the liability side. You're counting what what do I actually need to invest in. And so interestingly enough. So for, we, for most lawyers, it's going to be mostly cash, right? You're not going to own a whole lot of assets beyond the laptops in the office. Well, so three things, cash, accounts receivable, and work in progress. Oh right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're, you know, for a million dollar practice, you could easily be two hundred to to three hundred thousand potentially. Yep. That if, makes sense. If you're not good at billing in advance or or getting money up front <laughs> or those kind of things, you so can change that number by just doing the bills. <laughs> uh, that's right. That, and, and you certainly, and if once you understand that from a technical standpoint, you actually have a little more courage to actually go ask for it. Mm-hmm. So that certainly helps. So once you set that target, the number that we see is if you run your business to the correct level of profitability, 
after, and you've already taken a wage for the service for your job as a as a worker in the business, whatever role you take, then the minimum return on invested capital in our mind is fifty percent return without selling the business. This is year over year, mm-hmm. and the average is seventy five to a hundred for most service based businesses. So you should be you should be making a profit equal to half your somewhere between fifty and one hundred percent of your invested capital. Exactly. Okay. Huh. And now I've found that this is actually an easier way to win the argument of why you should have profitability mm-hmm. is because I have an investment and I need to be at the rate of market for that investment. But and, and I need to leave money in the business to meet that minimum capital standard. Now, the moment I have a dime more than that, I'm free to take it out. I don't right. need to leave it in the business, but it is actually, I believe, actively working in the business up to that point. Hmm. And and so at that point, yes, you're going to have two months of operating expenses in cash. That's kind of one of our core principles. That's part of your capital structure. And but once you you know, I don't want you to have three, and I don't want you to have six, <laughs> and I want you to have two. And every every dollar above that two is is I want it doing something else outside of the business, unless you've got some other purpose to to leave it in, which are limited. So from that standpoint, the argument that I I try to win in people's mind is: Listen, would you starve if you had a fifty percent CD from the bank? Wouldn't you reinvest the after tax interest every year? I mean, mm-hmm. I got to take the tax out because yep. it is ordinary taxable income. And would you not be thrilled that you have a fifty percent CD that you're paying tax? on the interest from that CD. Right. Of right. course, you'd be turning backflips telling all your friends, hey, this bank over here is, is giving out... And oh, by the way, sometimes they give out 100% CDs. And so as long as they're giving out that level, I'm going to keep reinvesting. Now, the moment that you know it's time to reinvest and the bank comes back and says, well, I know you'd like to reinvest the proceeds. We don't have any more 100% CDs to give out. How would you like 3%? Then you take the money out and you take it home. That's yep. right. And and so the idea is you always want to invest because this is how private enterprise makes money and builds wealth is I take an, an advantage of that opportunity to make that 50 to 100% return as long as the market allows me to do it. You can't take all the money out. You have to you have to before you take distributions, you have to reinvest in the business. That's right. Yeah. And 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 why wouldn't you if it's going to get you a fifty to one hundred percent return? Mm-hmm. That cool. that's the argument. And so and and like I said, we've done this study on hundreds and hundreds of businesses since we kind of discovered that concept of the why behind it. Yeah. And I have yet to see a U.S. based business that couldn't meet the, the at least the fifty percent return on invested capital standard. Now they may not be doing it because they're unwilling to do the things that they need to do, but they're there is a clear way that you're not managing your inventory correctly. You're not managing. If you're not getting paid for at least half of the the bills that are in progress or outstanding, then you're doing something really badly wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so it's just it's just courage. It's you got to step up to the plate and build your business case for why that needs to be. And uh, but once you do it, it is freedom of capitalization. So now then. There's an idea that as you improve, you set that level of targeted profitability, and then once you have kind of maximized your share of that market, and that bank's not giving out 100% CDs anymore, guess what? You can change your where equation. Mm -hmm. So it's not share, it's where. And and so like what we did, I mean, our our office is based in Huntsville, Alabama. We we really don't even market to businesses in Huntsville, Alabama, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's the old adage. You expand your market at that point. That's right. 85% of what we do is not in Huntsville. So we, mm-hmm. you know, we we changed our where 
because I couldn't run the practice that I'm running today at the size we're at if I just focused on one geography. Right. And and so now there's other businesses that it makes perfectly good sense if that's what you want to do. Just understand there's a point that you've you've attracted all the worth getting business that's going to be in that market share by changing ours to the we can do work anywhere uh i mean i'll, I'll never <laughs> I'll, I'll never get to the share uh equation on that because it's there's businesses all over the world that we work with well we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and when we come back we're going to talk about the final two keys to profitability and hopefully we'll have time to dive into a couple of follow-ups on that too so we'll be right back Part of building a successful practice is finding the right payment partner. It's important to work with a processor that understands the complex rules for legal payments. LawPay is the only payment solution that ensures trust account compliance for both credit card and e-check transactions. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program and all 50 state bars, LawPay. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com lawyerist today. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Betty's are ready to help you grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit www.backofficebetty's.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month. Boost your productivity and save time typing with Text Expander. You can make your own snippets or share and manage snippets for your organization, even if your team works from home. You'll reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander can save you so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com/podcast to learn more about Text Expander. So we're back. So we covered the first key, uh, which is owner's salary and being, you know, uncovering any other hidden expenses like rent that you ought to be paying so that you have a clear picture of your business. Um, the second is what your profitability target needs to be. Um, in the book, you've shown it as 10%, uh, which is actually more like the new break even. And you've previewed that your next book, you're going to be talking about it as as more like 50 to 75, 100% of your invested capital is a reasonable profit estimate. So let's cover the, the two final keys and then dive into some deeper questions? Well, the third key is how. And the number one way that you get to that level of profitability is management of labor productivity. So we believe that labor is the key of changing that equation if you're not currently there. And if you are there, it is how well you manage labor going forward and not giving away the farm, you know, that will allow you to maintain it. And the way that we do that is a little slide of math change of where we look at margin output per labor dollar. Uh, and, and so that's that's really kind of the key. It's not revenue. Uh, however, typically in a professional services business, uh, it will likely be revenue. But here's an example of where it would not be. So if I have an engagement where I have to subcontract a technical piece that I presently don't have the skill set for or capacity, it could be either one, and I subcontract, let's say it's a $10,000 engagement, and I subcontract $2,000 of it to another contractor, and I spend $2,000 of my labor cost on that client relationship. You know, I've built 10000 If I take 10000 relative to the two, I've got a, a five multiplier of my labor cost. So we call that a labor efficiency ratio. I could look at it as a percentage 
But I always ask people, I said, would you rather be referred to as a fraction of something or would you be referred to as a multiplier? And I believe the emotional aspect of being a multiplier, that whatever my labor cost is, I'm creating a multiple off of that for the business in that process. Now, the thing is, 10000 is a is a fake number, though, because that's total billings. But I had to give up $2,000 that you know to an outside agency. So really... Revenue minus uh, materials or subcontractors is what we call gross margin. And we believe gross margin is the true top line of a business. If you look in the original book on page 22, I show an example of a construction company compared to a services business. And the construction company has $20 million of revenue. Services business has $3,750,000. And yet, when you take out their materials and subcontractors, they both get the gross margin of $2,750,000. And, and they're really exactly the same business from that point down. And that's really financial truth speaking there is you've got to filter out the passers. Now, the challenge is, is the accounting systems don't line up with our philosophy because they they want to like QuickBooks will give you an item called gross profit. And so the next thing we do is we take gross margin minus direct labor to get to a term we call contribution margin. And the reason why separating out direct labor from those other costs, even though I get it and I agree that they are direct costs, here's my argument. Labor is the only cost that comes to work every day with an attitude. Its output potential varies from day to day relative to emotion and and environment and all kinds of things. And so, therefore, I must find a way to communicate to that labor more frequently to keep it on track and keep it performing at its best possible version of itself. And, and so as you, as you go through that process, our, uh, we have one prime directive, never, ever, ever mix labor with something that's not labor when it comes to your financials. Mm-hmm. And, and so that gives you clarity. Now, we take labor and put it into two buckets. There's direct labor, the people who, who generally do the stuff that you do, so any of your billable people. And then management labor are the people who do supporting work. Now, we sometimes call it admin labor. I, I've just kind of generally called it management labor. Uh, because higher level executives feel besmirched if I call them admin. And so I'd rather just call all of them management labor. So anybody's not primarily a, a direct billable source. Now, the thing is, here's your problem. There's some people who do a little of both. Well, great. I always say, if whatever, kind of use the 50-50 you know, scenario. If 50% or more of your time is, is directly facing the customer doing the thing that you do, I want that whole body put up into direct labor. Even though in in the legal industry, accounting industry, both, we can fractionalize and move those people around, you're giving people ways to kind of slide through the system and find that bucket to charge time to that's not really holding them accountable. So we call it a butt in a bucket. I mean, you're either direct labor or you're management labor. And if I'm management labor and I do some billing, that's fine. I'm just helping support the, the direct labor team by billing some things. But my prime directive is management of the business. Now, in my case, I'm actually direct labor in our business model. And, and the reason for that is roughly half of my time, I'm working on something client-related. It may not be billable, but it is directing the billable activities. It might be directly facing the client. And then the other half of my time, roughly, is marketing. You know, the, I, I may carry the CEO title, but I'll tell everybody at, at this stage, listen, uh, that's probably 5 10% of my time. There's not enough CEOing to do. And so you may want to give yourself that title. 
functional, but you've got to really be functional and look at it and say, how much do you, you know, in, in a, I mean, we're, we're about $5 million of revenue and uh, about 45 people. And, and so, I, you know, there's not a full-time CEO role. There's just not. And if anybody likes to tell themselves, you're actually just going to be an administrative burden on the rest of the team by trying to draw a full-time salary off of that. So, you know, and there'll be a point that it does justify that. And as I've told my team, I said, that that's when I won't have that job because that's not the job I want. Uh, I, I like the job I have, and, and that's really where my highest, best value is. And so, again, the goal is just getting some truth about um, where you need to be on what you ought to be spending on labor. And as your business grows, you shouldn't just be adding people. And if you're watching the productivity go down, you need to address that problem, not just add more and more people. Yeah, and once you establish kind of the gross margin for the salaries, the whole salaries, both billable and non-billable, what that person is making, you you establish really quickly this pattern for your business. Mm-hmm. For our firm, ours is a two. I, I actually look at two numbers first and foremost when I get my data on the first day of the month for our model for our own firm. I look at our rolling 12 revenue, what have we billed in the last 12 months, and I look at our labor direct labor efficiency ratio. And I can tell you that if we're at a two, I guarantee you we'll be above a 10% profit. Mm-hmm. There's not enough mystery to all the other costs. It, it's going to be that number. Well, and you just mentioned rolling revenue. So let's talk about the fourth key, which is cash flow. Give me the preview of that. Yeah. So so cash flow, think of it like this. It, it's probably actually even a little more subtle than that. It's more about utilization of profit. So once I have profitability... What is my rules of utilization of that? So we call it the four forces of cash flow. Because here's the thing, people get hung up on this, but I must create profit to create sustainable cash flow. I can create temporary cash flow by selling a fixed asset, but I, you know, once I've sold all my fixed assets, I have nothing to sell, so that's not going to create cash flow. And, and I might occasionally collect an old receivable. Well, that'll pop cash flow a little bit. Listen, if you'll just commit to consistent profitability and consistent collection, whatever your terms are with your customers, whether it's 50% up front for a project or just billable hours as you go, whatever it is, once it establishes and sets in, you're going to have eventually the cash flow and profitability catch up and they get to the same train station. They just get there at a different speed. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the same number. And, and, and I really think it's more about what is your strategic utilization of that profitability. And we say the first thing you do is if I've created profit, I've got a taxable consequence I must prepare for. Now, here's where that nasty word taxes comes in. And let me just tell you, unless you write a big stinking check to the IRS, you got a problem. Because there's nothing that's going to eliminate your taxes other than two things. I either didn't make any money or I cheated. And both of those are bad. And and so just get over it and quit listening to all these stupid stories that people tell you because they're not telling you 100% of the truth. There's nickel and dime crap out there that tax advisors talk about. And and it depends on how big you consider a nickel and dime, I guess. But, I mean, you know, it's a thousand here and a thousand there. Listen, you know, I'm talking about six-figure impacts. And we've taken people that had mindsets of not paying taxes and and turned it around to where they're writing seven-figure checks to the IRS because they can show you where the multiplier or that number is in real cash right. that they you, you, you have to stop thinking about lowering your tax burden and start thinking about increasing yeah. your profitability. 
which will increase your tax burden, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. And you say this in the book a few times, but it's like stop focusing on not paying taxes and just there are absolutely smart times to move a payment forward or backwards or, or, you know, add an expense when it makes sense. But um, the goal is not just to minimize your taxes. Realistically, you know, you want to be able to, to write that check. And the key is what most people have gotten messed up is they're not setting aside the amount of tax as it happens because the IRS's schedule of when you pay it in is so disconnected from that. Mm-hmm. And so where we found success in this is quarter, when I'm having a discussion with a client on April 15th, it's not about how much tax you need to pay in for the extension for this year's return. That's been settled a long time ago. Well, we're asking, what did you make in the first quarter and how much tax do we need to set aside that you may not have to pay for a year from now? Right. But but guess what? It's not your money. And so let's set that aside and just not even not even worry about it. Because really, be careful the in, of the instructions that you give your tax accountant. If you tell your tax accountant that you don't want to pay tax, and that's easy. I'll just help you not make any money. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna help you waste precious capital that you created from profitability and spend a dollar to save 40 cents in tax. And that is just the dumbest idea that there's ever been created in that process. And and these are just psychological things because, I mean, people do. I mean, they just have this visceral reaction to taxes. And I go, listen, I mean, you know, we, we've got clients that, you know, made nothing, paid no tax for 14 years. on. They had no profit in the business for 14 years. And then all of a sudden, you know, they, they go, you know, they have that first year, they owe a little bit of tax and they freak out. And I go, listen, we've set the money aside. Just pay it. Well, that, that's where I've arrived. Like, I, you know, taxes were a problem because I wasn't planning appropriately for them. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm planning appropriately for them, I, I don't care if I have to write a check. It's not about that. And uh, I just want to be able to write that check. That's the important thing. Yeah. So the four forces, that's the first step that you do. The second step is then I want you to make sure that you use the net after tax money left in the business that you got left over. I've set aside my taxes. and We that's pay it all equation. out to ourselves as distributions, right? Well, if you're a flow-through <laughs> business, yeah, yeah, the idea is no, let's not do that. Uh, the advantage, the technique that we actually do is we actually have the business set up a tax savings account for the tax money. And so mm-hmm. That's what quarter we've done. to quarter or month to month, we put that aside. And then when your accountant tells you it's time to make an estimated payment, that's where you pull the money out from, but you don't count that as part of your business money, right. you know, in that, that process. So, so then you go to the second one, it says, Oh, any cash left over. If I owe anything on a line of credit, let's, let's pay that in because I, I'm fine with you having a line of credit, but lines of credit are for temporary distortions in the cash flow cycle. Mm -hmm. By nature, if you have a line of credit that does not go to zero for 30 consecutive days, you have what the bank industry calls an evergreen loan. Mm -hmm. And, and, And so it's not a line of credit. It is a lack of profitability or lack of discipline of use of profits. And, and so that, that becomes a critical key. So we want that line of credit to go to zero. Then third, the third force of cash flow is I need to keep cash in the business until I have two months of operating expenses in cash. And so that so you means, don't need the line of credit. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it is, it, what is really amazing to me is how many of our clients have no debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, none. I mean, they have a line of credit. It just has zero on it. Mm-hmm. They might touch it once a year, once every two years. 
I, you know, it's like, well, should I renew it? Yeah, I mean, it's good to renew it, you know, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, the thing is, it's there for emergency dis- or, you know, temporal disruptions in the business, you know, that are just, you know, rare, but yet I don't want to be scrambling trying to put that loan in place when it's time to need it. But, but it's really amazing to just the comfort that people get once that line goes to zero and stays there. And then the third piece is once I have the line paid off, and, and, I, and as we said, you have too much of core capital in the business, that's what we call buffer capital now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so once I get to that number, any dollar above that is then the fourth use of that cash flow, and that's a distribution. So really, you got to take care of everything else first. Right. It's the last thing. Distributions is the last thing you take care of. And this feeds back in because if you're thinking about your distributions as the primary way you get paid from your business, then we've just scared the hell out of you right. because it sounds like you're not going to get paid, which is why you have to give yourself a reasonable salary up front so that you can be re- looking. I mean, this, the whole point of everything we've been discussing to this point is getting a true financial picture of your company, which you can't do if you're paying yourself off distributions, which is how many solos are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not, you know, and, and you need that consistency, I will tell you, I mean, when you set that salary to a market wage, it is amazing how people will work to a salary. Mm-hmm. I mean, emotionally, you'll defend salary long before you'll defend profitability. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, it's just, it's, it, humans just, it, there, there's this field of study called behavioral economics, and I'm a huge fan of that course of study because it's just really powerful to see what actually you know can happen when you change that human behavior matrix of how you see the problem. How should a, a solo or a small firm lawyer get to their market rate salary? Because uh, you've given some examples in your book, and I'm, I'm not sure those all apply to our industry. And I'm, I'm just wondering, how do you start thinking about that? Or what's a reasonable assumption to make and then just go with? Well, I mean, I, I, there are some reasonable, decent surveys out there. I mean, we actually subscribe to Economic Research Institute's salary assessor program. So I can actually pull, we, we have legal clients that we pull wage surveys uh, for the for the base pay of that position, but but actually there gets to be a component though that you know if you look at a, a lawyer's pay you know they are a productive element of the practice and certainly depending on what genre of practice they practice in. I mean if you're a if you're a personal injury lawyer then you're probably going to have a lower base but you're going to get a lot of variable comp because you're winning cases and but it's going to be a little more lumpy versus someone who does consistent real estate law practice or business law practice yours is about a production component and so what you can do but how is do you, you can and actually, well how do you, too how do you split up the I'm also the CEO versus the leader of the litigation team for example yeah, well, it, it's one of those things that there is a, you know, we can, the easiest thing is we can pull a wage survey on that. And then when you start to look at what that pay is and, and you start to, if you have a multiple role in the business, you just apply the percentage to that rate of pay. So classic example, I use dentists uh, for this one. So we have these two dentists that pay themselves on production. They have three locations. And so we're at the end of the year meeting. And one of the partners made seven hundred fifty thousand for that year, and the other partner made three hundred. And he was complaining that you know he spent more time managing the business, and he was right, he did. And I said, absolutely, we're going to take care of that. We're going to track every hour that you spend managing the business, and we'll pay you at a rate of seventy five thousand dollars a year because that's what we can go hire a practice manager. Because here's the thing, he's thinking about all that time he's spending managing the business is CEO, president duties, and they're not. They're managerial duties, 
that are a much lower value. And I said, we'll track all that time, pay you at a rate of 75000 Is Oh, by the way, I would do want to remind you that as a dentist, if you have your hands in somebody's mouth, you know, you can make a low rate of pay of 300 to a high of 750 So, hey, it's your choice. You can pick any job you want, but the market picks your pay. Right. So, what, so the end of the story is we actually hired the practice manager for them, paid <laughs> right. <him> 75000 <laughs> The guy made 500000 the next year instead. Yeah, you may, you may want somebody to, to hire somebody to run it. Um, one of the concepts you talk about in your book, which I really like, is sort of working backwards from your profitability margin that you're aiming for, your revenue, um, to get to your salary cap and treating your company like a sports team. Um, maybe you can describe briefly the concept and how to do that, because I really like that. Yeah, because really, if, you know, a lot of times we look at it from a standpoint that if you're not profitable where you're at, you've got one of two choices. You know, can I keep labor costs the same and grow to a point to meet my profit goal, or do I need to cut labor? And how much labor would I need to cut and still get everything done that I'm currently doing? And I might do a blend of the two. And so so that's typically, you know, your your issue because let's say I'm paying six hundred thousand dollars in wages right now and my profitability is zero and mm-hmm. and I need to let's say I'm doing a million dollars since this labor is probably the biggest, you know, practice cost. Let's say I'm doing a million dollars revenue, then I probably, if you look at those, everybody wants to cut kitchen supplies, and and I'm telling you, you know, you know, going to one ply toilet paper is not going to make you profitable. <laughs> it's just going to aggravate you. It, it is about labor productivity, and so the idea is, if I'm at zero profit at six hundred thousand in labor, you know, the chances of me probably getting to a million one and spending not a dime more in labor or slim, yeah. to be quite honest. So usually you have to go through and say, what what labor do I have that's not productive? You back it up and you, here's my labor cost needs to be this right. in order for me to hit right. this profitability. And so somebody's got to go or somebody's salary's got to get cut or I need more work out of you guys so that we can move the ball on what the revenue is. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so from that standpoint, realistically, I mean, there's your two labor efficiency ratio. I got 600,000 labor. I really need two times that number. And so I need a million two mm-hmm. out of that. So you look at your team and say, can this team get me to a million two? And all of a sudden, now you realize I actually have the right salary cap. I just don't have the right productivity. Yeah. So I got to put some people on waivers and I got to go pick up some free agents. And, oh, I actually might have to draft better and develop talent better. Speaking of uh, speaking of this, uh, you've talked about incentive plans briefly and fairly dismissively in the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that's probably right, having tried a lot of different plans for myself. I, I, I don't think the typical employee is really motivated by incentive plans outside of, say, sales. I mean, so I, I kind of fall into the uh, Adam Grant and uh, Dan Pink camp that uh, Dan Pink has a great TED Talk on the puzzle of motivation. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when you think that giving somebody the perfect comp plan will motivate them to perform. I mean, you're just fooling yourself that realistically we believe in compensation structure that you're trying to align market-based wage for market-based performance. If I put some variable component in there, if you use any type of variable component at all, we're fans of the great game of business, uh, Jack Stack approach, where it's a bonus as a percentage of base pay. And we have some structures that we've adapted from their philosophy that work really well with our, our planning platform, because then 
it is about you know you're 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 moving up the market wage scale from let's say if I set somebody's salary at the 50th percentile of market, how I get to the 75th percentile of market is because as a team we all functioned correctly together, right. and I moved up. But I've, it's never where you really where people err just incredibly often in incentive comp is you try to give them a you know every time you do this you get this. Well, the problem with that is that rate of giving somebody, in essence, an annuity of an activity is margin that you're going to need back at some point. And it might work for a little while, but it's really painful when I grab that back. When I actually set a performance target as a percentage of base pay, I I can model out that as the company hits its targets, and and we're not even using the, the target that we look at is that contribution margin number, not even net income, because I don't want... I'm not a fan of the team being involved in the strategic decisions where an owner decides to spend costs this year, but the benefit will come in a year to come. Right. Because then I'm restricting myself. I'm giving sway to the bonus program and not investing in my business and not making a, a discretionary choice of the use of profit for growth. And and if you base it off of that, that middle number of contribution margin that we talk about, that's a safer number where everybody can have uh, a benefit from and and it can be modeled out so that I know that of what I gave out in gain share I still gain too as the owner so rather than incentives it's better to focus on motivating your employees getting the right people in the door keeping them around so that you're not having to deal with turnover and training and um, and all that stuff. And I don't want to get into culture because we've talked about it plenty on the podcast, but the short version is like Dan Pink's TED Talk is a, and, and the, the facts and data that underlie it is one of the main reasons that companies are more focused on culture than on in- incentive plans. Yeah, but there, and certainly there's a, as an advantage to do a reinforcement of, hey, here's, here's success, but it's not a number mm-hmm. that is so large that it becomes, it changes how a person acts. It's almost like I, I want them to do their best no matter what. Right. And when I actually create an incentive program that that changes their behavior, what happens when the market is working against you and that, that performance isn't there? Well, and it, I mean, it also it, creates the situation with my daughter where, um, you, you know, that I have with my kids where I'm like, if you decide to do this thing, then here will be the consequence. And then it lets her decide, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. And maybe your employees are comfortable not making their incentives. <laughs> and, and yeah, it, it's just really kind of one of those things that I think the, the one plan that we do help a lot of clients implement is the great game of business version. Because they've had, it is really kind of one of those that kind of matches up nicely if you did want to do it. But I, I would say that maybe 20% of our clients do some type of incentive plan. I'm really more of a fan of, so my, my simple take on compensation is this. Uh, number one, forever take cost of living out of your vocabulary when it comes to compensation. Mm-hmm. Your, your cost of living makes is no difference to me, you know, what I should pay you. What I should pay you is market. Mm-hmm. Because if I paid you, if I paid everybody based on cost of living, I would pay everybody the same wage regardless right. of task or skill set. Right. That, that makes no sense whatsoever. And so at the end of the day, I'm trying to pay you market-based wage because then morally I can demand market-based performance. So that establishes the moral high ground for both parties. And, and so then when you start moving forward from there, the way I describe it is this. Use a bonus to recognize someone for exceptional performance above expectation 
that is unsustainable. And and the, and the key is unsustainable. Mm-hmm. How many of us have given people raises for unsustainable performance? Right. And 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 I get it. But you use a raise for two things. The market has now shifted. And I'm telling you, the data that I'm tracking is wages are increasing somewhere between 5 and 8% a year. Hmm. And uh, and we, this goes back about we've been tracking this since uh, about six years ago in our own data. So five percent annual raises should probably just be an assumption that you include in your planning. Pretty pretty much. If if they're if they're an employee that you'd like to keep, that's pretty much where it has to be because that that's what our weight because we track it. We've got a weight scale for every position, and so I tracked four key positions that are static. So I'm not following a person because that person's going to move up up levels. But I'm just tracking the same position, uh, there's four le- four particular positions for us mm-hmm. for the last eight years, and the lowest year of increase has been 5%, and the highest year has been 8 hmm. Yeah, and, and and which means if my labor cost is going up, I better darn well be increasing, increasing my prices, too. Uh, lastly, let's, let's tackle this one concept of uh, opening up the books. How, how do you feel, once you've gotten some honest finances uh, on the books, how do you feel about sharing that with your employee as if they're part of the team? So we've had good success in a I, I kind of more recommend the limited scale. Now we're brutally open book. I wouldn't recommend that to everybody, okay. but you know we we spend a lot of time teaching all of our staff the understanding of the data, not just how to read it. Um, but here here's my here's my rules for open book management. Number one, the owner must be able to defend the data. You you can't advocate that to me. I can coach up the owner, or my, my one of my consultants can coach them up, teach them how to talk about it, but they've got to own it. And, and if they can't defend the data, you're going to look bad in front of your team. Right. So if you, if you just don't feel comfortable doing that, I probably wouldn't. I might only do it on a most severely limited basis uh, and, and be careful of that. Secondly is you can have no inconsistencies in the data. You can't have any protected species on payroll, uh, which includes spouses, children, uh, your your lazy gotcha. roommate from college that you're helping out. You know, there's some great grids and personnel that talks about. Um, uh, we, we call them the what um, uh, terms call them the terrorists. So that's a person that's low on culture and high on output. Hmm. Uh, you know, you don't want the, the, those are really kind of problematic. You don't want the person that that is high on culture and low on productivity, and they're being paid a number. We, we had this happen. I refer to this in the book in, in one of the chapters where I said, but this lovely person, you know, she was great culturally. Uh, she had her resume said 15 years of experience. And come to find out, she had one year of experience 15 times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and because she was such a nice person, the person that she worked for covered for her all of those years. Sure. She had pretty much the same manager for those first 15 years. And when the manager left that firm, that's what exposed her at the other firm. Right. And then she, when she came to us, here I've got a person who I'm paying a 15 years of experience worth market wage to, and I got one year accountants out of college running circles around her. Right. And and, and it's like, if, if I 
don't adjust her pay. And there was, I actually could not cut her pay enough to make it work and her, and her still stay. So you've got to be able to be comfortable with all your numbers, including you can't have little sort of the kinds of things you might do when you own a business where you're like, no, it's fine. We'll just treat you like an employee. You, you've got to, you've got to be comfortable showing the books to your employee. And it can't just be like, because I'm the owner, that's why. That's right. And, and, and you've got to have a value equation because if I'm going to open that up, you know, everybody's really going to start to question that. Mm-hmm. Now, I will, I will tell you, even if you don't open it up, they have an idea. And, then, <laughs> and you should probably and, get rid of those things anyway because it's a sign of a, of a goof. Yeah. Your, your business shouldn't be tricky. And, and I will tell you that I would rather show them the truth and defend it mm-hmm. because what they don't know or guessing at is far worse than showing them the truth. That's a good point. Um, but also, if you can't defend it, why are you, you know, why are you doing it? You may, maybe somebody needs to shine a light on this for you. Yep. Anything else we should do before opening the books? So there is a technique that I would say most of our clients do, and that is that sharing of revenue, direct cost, direct labor down to contribution margin. We think that's, we think every business actually can share down to that point. So once we teach them these concepts of talking about labor efficiency ratios and sharing that data, we think that's a very safe number to share down to. And you got to remind them, hey, that's not profit. There's there's still operating expenses and, mm-hmm. and stuff that we got to pay for that. But that becomes, we think contribution margin dollars is the most critical number in your P&L because it, it is the pure output of your business engine. So I've, I've already filtered out my labor and I've filtered out any pass-through costs from contractors. And so now this is, this is really what I got to cover overhead, pay management labor, and make a profit. Very cool. Greg, thanks so much for being with us today. I think uh, we're running up against our time, and I really appreciate your patience and, and walking us through this stuff. We'll, of course, include a link to your book in our show notes. And if you want to follow along or catch up on Book Club this month, just pick up the book and join us in our Facebook Insiders group. Greg, thanks so much. Hey, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The Lawyers Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.